We are working our way through the book of Mark, and this morning I'm picking up in Mark 10 from where Ant left off, and there are three main topics in the book of Mark chapter 10. Ant spoke last week, I thought, with great um, compassion and, and truth into the subject of divorce, and this morning I'll be looking at the next two teachings that Jesus uh, has in this chapter, which are about children and about wealth. Um, and to set the, 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 the background for that, I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 10 and verses 13 to 31. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he, took it. and he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. And as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God for someone who is rich. The disciples were even more amazed and said to one another, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or feels for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times more as much as this in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. It seems sometimes a little bit random how these topics go. Jesus first teaches on divorce, and then he teaches on children, then he teaches on money. It's a bit like a Hollywood back, a sort of front page, it, it, you know, the, the things of life. But there, there is a coherent thread running through this, and at the end, I'd like to, to just touch on that coherent thread that runs through. It starts off this chapter by saying in verse 1, it was the custom of Jesus to teach the crowds that came to him. Jesus then left the place he went into the region and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan, and again crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Jesus performed miracles and he did healings and so forth, but mostly what he did was he taught. And when you teach, it's valuable to know something of the background and, and the context that the people are coming from, the people that you are teaching. My wife teaches little ones. She teaches two years and nine months. And it's actually a wonderful place to teach young people because they're almost like a blank page. It's, it's, it's a clear page to be written on. But most of us, when we're teaching and when we are being taught, we're dealing with people who already have certain preconceptions and certain ideas. And often when you're teaching, when you want to teach the right thing in the right way, you first have to deal with what people think is the truth and what people have been doing and what their experiences and what their preferences are. 
And sometimes that's more difficult. And Jesus really was working with the situation where very often he was having to preach in a way that was countercultural. And he wasn't doing that to shock, he was doing that to restore something that was troublesome. Once we're embedded and ingrained with, with, with things that are not the truth or are not accurate, it's really, really difficult to turn that around sometimes. And Jesus came into a world that was not living according to the relationship that God wanted to have with, him, with them. He came, you know, it's interesting, the role that John the Baptist played was to stir people up from where they were. Israel had become complacent. Just before Jesus came, well, not just before, for centuries before Jesus came, Israel had been living on previous teaching, had been living on old teaching. For about 400 years before Jesus came, there were no powerful prophets like Samuel. How Israel had existed before in the Old Testament was, some theologians talk about that period of time in Bible history as the silence. And in that space where prophets were not putting things right, other people stepped in and began to teach human wisdom and began to teach and turn things into tradition and into a way of doing things. And that became deeply embedded in people's lives. Suddenly, this wild-looking man comes out of the, the wilderness called John the Baptist, and he starts teaching repentance. And that was a new thing for them, because they were taught tradition. Do this, and that will happen. Do these things, and that will happen. And John comes and says, what you're doing on the outside is not that important. It's what's on the inside, and he preaches repentance. And he begins to stir up the tradition that has been there, and into that newly stirred up situation comes Jesus, and he begins teaching the kingdom of God. He goes around proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is the way things are in the kingdom. And so, when we look at these two stories we're looking at, we need to look at it in that context. He's not just teaching them something that's brand new. He's actually coming against some of the traditions. And the first area that he begins to talk to these people about deals with the importance or the role of young people and, and the attitude of young people. Just to read that part to you again, it says that people were bringing children to him and the disciples rebuked them. The disciples looked at the situation, and they operated in the context of Israel at that stage. I want to find a quote, and I've lost my place now. A, a, a rabbi called Dosa ben Arkinos, who lived apparently in the time of about the second temple of Solomon, said this as these are some things that distract a man and make him less effective, that actually he used the term take him out of the world. He said the following things, morning sleep, midday wine, the chatter of children, and living with common people. Children were considered an irritation. The rabbis would not spend their time talking to them because they were not yet valuable to them. They had not yet begun to, to, to rise to the level that they felt that they deserved their attention. The chatter of children was a distraction. And after a busy day, one can imagine, Jesus is going about his business, and people begin to bring children to him, and the disciples, acting from where they were grounded and where their culture was and where the tradition was, said to the people, no, not children, not children. Take the children away. And it says Jesus was indignant. And he says, bring them. And he says more than that. He says... Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs, belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. 
And what is the characteristic of how a child enters into something and how they take something on? It's got to do with the acceptance of things with a very simple faith. Um, the picture God gave me for this that I always refer to is when you have a child standing on, some, on the stairs or on a wall or in a tree and dad says, jump and I'll catch you. The child doesn't stand there and go, right, okay, dad says, jump and I'll catch you. Now, I weigh 15 kilograms. And I'm about two meters high here. Dad is six feet tall, so I've got to drop another meter to get to him with the distance in between. In that time, I'm going to accelerate as I go down, and E equals MC square. Now, Dad weighs about 85 kilograms, and he's got a certain level of, of inertia as he stands there. And I calculate that if I jump, he will be able to catch me. Okay, Dad, here I come. It doesn't happen that way. The child jumps because he knows Dad loves him. And he knows that because his history with dad and his understanding of the love of his father, his father will not encourage him to jump in his arms if he can't handle it and catch him. So not based on the child's knowledge of what is needed to do that, but on the trust that they have in their father, the child will jump. When my, my daughter was very little, we used to go on holiday to my parents' home during the summer holidays, and we'd go to a town called Fishuk in South Africa. Anybody know Fishuk? Nobody here? It's got a great beach. Um, it's now got a bit of a problem, the sharks didn't have that when we were younger, but it, it does now. But at that stage, lovely swimming beach, and there's, there's a walk that goes up the side of the bay uh, along the rocks. It goes out quite a distance. And, and my daughter would say to me, Daddy, let's go and jump in the deep. That was what she would call it. And we would go out along these rocks to about 100, 150 meters off the beach. And we'd come to a rock that was probably, what, about four feet above the water. And I would jump in, and I'd say, come, Jess, and she would jump in. She was little. She could probably swim about five or ten meters, but she would happily jump in, and we would swim back to the beach because she would swim a while, and then she would hang onto my shoulders, and I would swim, and then she would let go. But she jumped in because she knew that I loved her, and I would not encourage her into something that I did not believe I could take care of her in. There was a, we talk about blind faith as if it's a bad thing. Faith is always blind. The Bible says faith is believing something that you can't see. There's no other type of faith. People talk about you know, jumping blind faith. Well, faith means I'm taking something, I'm trusting the person who says at the point that I will come. And Jesus says, unless you are prepared to enter the kingdom of God with a faith that is based on the character of God and who you believe him to be, you're not going to make it. God says, come unto me. Jesus says, come unto me. And if we go, okay, now Jesus says this now. This is the reason there, but I can't see how this is going to happen. I've got so many reasons why I can't believe this. My tradition, my experience, what I've done before, everything I have says to me, I have no guarantee here. I will rather wait. Have you met people who say, I really want to believe. I really want to believe. I look at Christians and I see so much that I want to have part of and, and, and I look at the joy that you have, but I just find it so hard to believe because my background says this and my background says that. It's really, really hard, is it not, for scientists to believe in God? Because there comes a point where they say, but I've got to have proof, and proof says that I must be able to measure it, I must be able to observe it, and I must be able to see a result. And it's hard. 
Coming to Jesus is easy in terms of what you've got to do. It's quite hard in terms of the faith that you've got to exercise. And Jesus takes this little child and says, don't underrate these young people. They're in a place where they trust because they know the person that they're trusting. And you will grow in your faith. Try and understand what I'm saying. It's quite simple, but it's quite profound, I think. You will grow in your faith not by knowing more about God. You will grow in your faith not by knowing more about Jesus. You will grow in your faith knowing more of Jesus and who he, knowing Him. Not knowing about Him, but knowing Him. Getting to know the person. You know, the whole Bible reveals the nature of God. In everything, He's revealed. And as you grow to know Him more, your faith in who He is will grow. The technical knowledge is wonderful. We need to study the Bible. We need to be able to teach it and, and to discern. But it's about the person, and children respond because they trust the person, because they get to know the person, because they love the person. If they don't trust you, you can give them any explanation you like. If dad stood at the bottom, or some stranger stood at the bottom of the wall and said to a little guy, jump, and I'll catch you because I know you weigh 15 kilograms and I weigh 85 kilograms and I've worked out the mass and I'll catch you. If the child doesn't know that person and doesn't trust them, they're not going to jump. We need to know like a child. Now, I'm still going to come back and try and find this common thread through divorce and children, but let's look at the next incident that we uh, look at here, and I'm not going to go into every detail, but we're looking at someone who comes to Jesus and said, how do I know? How do I, how do I know that I can inherit eternal life? Let's just have a quick look at that scripture. He says to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a straightforward answer. He says, do you know the, the, the law? And he gives him the Ten Commandments. He says, and these are the things you... And the guy says, that's no problem. I've done that since, since I was a young person. I've followed the law. I've done the stuff that the Pharisees have told me to do. I'm a good guy. And then Jesus goes straight to the heart of where this guy lives. And he says to him, right, now I need you to go, and I need you to sell all, of you, all of you that you have, and to take what you get for that, and to give it away, and when you have nothing, come and follow me. And I want you to remember and to notice, Jesus didn't do this to every person that wanted to follow him. This was not a standard procedure for Jesus. He doesn't say, right, anybody who wants to come to me, first you sell everything. This is what this guy required, and this is what this guy needed. Now, let's look at what culture and tradition spoke. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law at that stage taught people that wealth was to be looked for, it was to be admired, and wealth was a indication of the blessing of God in your life. If you were wealthy, it was because God loved you and He gave you more. If you were poor, there was something wrong in your life, and God was showing you His disapproval in your poverty. And so, to turn to someone who has been successful in life and who this Scripture says was very wealthy, and to say to him, give away all that you've got, was to go against what they expected anybody who understood the culture and the law to follow. But Jesus knows that this is the one thing that is more important in this guy's life than actually following him. And so, again, he comes against the culture and he says to this guy, I need you to give away all that you've got. And because of that, the guy moves off. There are a number of God's chosen leaders in the Bible who were wealthy. Abraham was fabulously wealthy. Jacob had so many flocks that when he and, and uh, his, his people moved through, there was like a, a, a town or a city moving. Solomon would have made Jeff Bezos look poor. 
He had rooms full of gold. People brought him treasures from all over the world. God has often blessed his people with wealth. There's nothing wrong with having money. But there is a problem when money has you and it becomes the thing that stands between you and God. And when this man comes to Jesus, he looks straight through all of the other things. He looks at his diligence in following the law and he sees that's the one thing that he can't let go of, the one thing that he's holding on to and he can't let go of. And he says to him, leave that. And as a consequence, the young man walks away. And others around him, Jesus turns to him and he says, it's more difficult for this person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And they say, well, that's impossible. And he says, but with God, all things are possible. In Luke chapter 16, verses 13 to 15, it says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. That's what Jesus was attacking. This perception that there's a certain way that you do things. If you don't do it that way, the disapproval of God is on you, and it had nothing to do with relationship that went up. A simple relationship based on faith is what God desires, but we often find it easier to construct a religion of works and attainment that we can practice and demonstrate, and by doing what we achieve, we can measure it. Think about that. If we can construct something that we can control, that we can measure, that we can have certain benchmarks that we meet, certain standards that we achieve, we can reassure ourselves that according to our understanding, we are pleasing God. It's really, really difficult to be in a situation where we don't limit God's relationship with us according to our relationship with other people. As much as we love other people, we do judge them. We measure them by criteria of what we want in their lives. We look at things when we seek friends, we seek people of a, of a similar mind to us. And we have constructs. Some people just never make it into our friendship circles because of things that we put there. And to know that God is not operating in that way is difficult for us because as much as the Bible teaches us that we made in the image of God, we try to reconstruct God in our image. We try and make Him understandable by relating to how we would feel in a certain situation. And so we have these set of parameters and, and, and we can control those. We have our traditions and we can control those. And in that we find a certain level of security. And Jesus comes and He tears all those things away. He says, you've got to start from the beginning of a relationship, not of what you've achieved or how much you know. Children don't know much, but they can be in that relationship. So my question to you, because our time is limited this morning, is are there things that you're hanging on to, just like this person hung on to his wealth, that are restricting your relationship with God? Things that you're measuring yourself by, things that you consider to be essential in terms of your rights and your privileges and what you value in yourself that are those are the things that you carry in your little bag with you, and you'll give your whole life to God, but you keep that little part aside. What's the common thread that's running through these three stories, divorce, children, and finance? The common thread for me is that in all three of them, Jesus is challenging the existing thinking completely, and He's requiring them to do something to understand something that for them is completely new. And that leads me to Mark chapter 2 and verse 22 reading on, it talks about wine and wineskins. 
One of the things that we find difficult, I think that people find difficult in the world, is that we try to add Christianity to our lives. When Jesus arrived, a lot of people followed him. A lot of people liked what they saw him doing. They liked the miracles that he was doing. They enjoyed seeing the healings. And they followed him. And when they saw what he did, they thought, I want to have this person as part of my life. Crowds would follow him, and they would stay around him. They wanted to have him as part of their life. They wanted, unfortunately, to have their lives and to add Jesus to their lives. And that's not how it works. And that's what happens so much today. People have established lifestyle. They've established precedence. They've established preferences and, 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 and the way that things work. And you come and you say to them, I want to introduce you to the Son of God. I want to introduce you to Jesus Christ who can bring forgiveness for your sins and can change your life and bring you eternal life. And they say, yes, I would like that. Can you give me that? And I will adapt it and I will add it to my life and I will make it comfortable within my life with my traditions, how I feel about things, and we will go forward in some sort of a combination of what I believe and what I can understand and a Jesus that I've adapted to that. And that's what people were trying to do with Jesus, and that's why they ultimately rejected him. Because you don't add Jesus to your life. You give your life to Jesus. He's not an app that you put on your phone. And when you get to those parts that you think Jesus would be useful, you bring up that app and you bring up your Jesus app and you say, Lord, I'm in trouble. I need help with my exams. I'm in trouble. I need help with my finances. I'm in trouble. I need help with my relationships. Or you're in a particularly good mood and there's a great sunset and you bring up your Jesus app and say, I feel like having an emotional relationship with you right now. You give your life to Jesus. You give your preferences, your tradition, those things that you've been raised from that high believing and you take them and say, Lord, whatever doesn't stand up to who you are and what you teach, I'm prepared to discard. My riches and my wealth and the things that I've built my life trying to accumulate this young man, I will take that and I will put it to one side. My knowledge, my teaching, my intelligence, the, the way that I've advanced since I've been a child, the things that I've grown, my stature, I will put that away. I will be like a little child. My preferences about, in the first part, about how marriage should be and how my wife should behave towards me, or I'll write a certificate and give it to her until she can go on her way, which is what Anne talked about last week. I will take that belief structure and put it aside, and I will say, what do you want? My life is yours. I'm giving that to you. I'm not going to call you up when I need you and open the app, my Jesus app. And that's the challenge I want to leave with you this morning. Jesus came countercultural, not just to shock us, not just to say, look, I'm new, I'm the greatest thing. He came to say to people, this is a brand new thing. When, they, when Jesus spoke about the wineskins, he said, if you put this new wine into an old wineskin, it's going to rupture it, it's going to break it, and you're going to waste the wine and you're going to tear your wineskin. You can't add a little bit of Jesus to your life. I love that. that what's that song, Mumbo Number Something? Well, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You can't add a little bit of Jesus to your life. It doesn't work that way. It's the whole deal. You give your life to Him. And so my challenge to you this morning is, have you done that? And are you doing that on a daily basis? Because it's not a one-off thing. Are you getting up in the morning and saying, I give you my life? I know I struggle. If you don't, well done, but I struggle. Because I constantly want to do things my way. I constantly want to go back to what my tradition says, what, what the common sense of the day says, what common opinion says and there's that challenge that Jesus brings it's brand brand new it's not an adapted version it's not a panel beaten version it's brand brand new let's pray
Lord, thank you that your word is fresh and new and changes our lives. Give us the courage, I pray, Lord, to be radical in our belief, to not add you to our lives, but to give our lives to you and to be made whole and to be made new. Amen.